Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carroll Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk, Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press, and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All, from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writing MFA. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life what is your movie reviewing and reappraising genre hopping podcast for 800 noah my name's chance solemn pfeiffer you're listening to be real on the playlist podcast network he's noah ballard how are you my friend a are you excited b are you nervous c don't you care d it is written we're here to talk about game show films today on be real as always we're thrilled to be on the playlist podcast network with shows like the discourse fourth wall indie beat find us wherever you get your shows spotify itunes you know wherever um and thanks to california college of the arts writing mfa program for uh, con- their generous continued support <laughs> thumbs up all over the place um but yeah, quiz show the the film what I'm going to argue is the best film of the 90s. No, I'm not going to argue that. But it is a film of the 90s that turns 25 this month. Uh, more than enough reason for us to hop to the genre of game show movies, which we've uh, somehow never hopped to before. So what are we talking about today, man? The second one, and I feel like this is getting some play online, too, because it just found its way to free Amazon Prime streaming, uh, is Arnold Schwarzenegger is Running Man. Everyone I know talking about The Running Man. And what's the third? I've seen a lot of tweets about The Running Man from my my uh, circle of friends. Uh, and then, of course, the third one is Slumdog Millionaire. The Oscar Big winner. Big Best Picture winner, yeah, from 2008. What a weird... Ten years is such an interesting time to revisit movies that people were like, that was good, and then never talked about again. So I'm excited to kind of unearth that puppy a little bit. I had totally, I mean, I was texting you about it. I had totally forgotten what kind of a movie Slumdog Millionaire was. It's a it's a kind of movie, that's for sure. I mean, it's who wants to be a millionaire as told by the director of Trainspotting. That's exactly right. Um, but we're starting with Quiz Show, right? Absolutely. We must. So it's our mandate. Jai Ho, lead the way. <laughs> it's a mandate. You can tell how much we want to talk about Quiz Show by how many Slumdog Millionaire references we're making. Um, The goofy thing about Quiz Show is that it has been in my Netflix queue. It's still currently on Netflix since a Netflix queue existed. I think it's been on my watch list since 2012. Um, It's just been sitting there watching you from the My List feature on Netflix? Yeah, with Ray Fiennes and those wraparound headphones just like looking at me. Wondering if he's compromised or I'm compromised or what's going on. But if you don't know Quiz Show, it uh, was a 1994 movie directed by Robbie Redford. Um, 
It was his fourth movie of nine. Uh, we can talk about his uh, his directorial efforts in a little bit. But yeah, like Noah said, it's it's Ray Fiennes. Uh, one year after he won the Oscar for Schindler's List, he is playing Charles Van Doren, who is a real life contestant. Uh, on this 50s game show called 21 that got swept up in these corruption charges after it turned out they were giving people the answers slash booting them off the show at their whim for whatever the ratings, uh, you know, seem to dictate. And with the special involvement from the sponsors, Geritol. <laughs> if you Absolutely. Want little... the This tonic that with questionable properties. Yeah. <laughs> I watched this movie with my mom, and I was like, Mom, what's Geritol? And she's like, oh, it's just some extra iron for your blood. I mean, we could all use a little Geritol. I was like, Mom, it sounds like you're stumping for, for Geritol. She's like, it's <laughs> it a- like she's really... And then she yeah. started singing the Geritol yeah. theme song under her breath. She's like, oh, it's a fine product. Mmm, <laughs> um, Geritol. <laughs> yum. I feel healthier already. Uh, so, yeah, it's... It's an interest. It's definitely like an Oscar Beatty movie with uh, a lot of commentary on the fifties. It's a movie about television, as every other character says um, when given the chance. Um, but it's all. I guess it's also sort of like an investigation movie, right? Uh, the little scene after character actor Rob Morrow um, plays Dick Goodwin, an investigator from the Congressional Oversight Committee, to try and take down the network, take down Geritol, and. Uh, develops kind of a weird, uneasy friendship with Charles Van Dorn and has a weird, uneasy friendship with Herb Stimson, who was the guy who got kicked off the show, um, played by John Turturro. So that's the setup. It's on Netflix now. Let's get into it. Geritol presents the exciting quiz program, 21. Give me the name of the explorer who discovered Mozambique. Vasco da Gama? Correct, for 10 points. Temple is an underdog. People root for that. It wasn't going to be terrific. Have you seen the ratings? I'd like you to meet next week's challenger, Charles Van Doren. Oh. How much do they pay instructors up at Columbia? $86 a week. Do you have any idea how much Bozo the Clown makes? Gotta be James J. Braddock. Correct, you have 21. Is this guy a natural or what? He's a natural. (laughs) $20,000. What if? We would ask you questions that you know. Well, I think I'd really rather try to beat him honestly. Just an idea. Was that part of the test? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know his name. Halleck, General H.W. Halleck. You have 21! I'm constantly amazed at the facts these guys have at their fingertips. It's been nine weeks now. And you've won how much? Yeah, I'm going to have to stop you right there, too, and back it up a little, saying that, like, Rob Morrow didn't have a career outside of playing Dick Goodwin, the sort of protagonist. Fans of Northern Exposure will remember him uh, in his star turn as Dr. Joel Fleischman. And, of course, he was on the hit CBS drama Numbers, opposite David Krumholtz. Was Northern Exposure before this or after this? It was directly after Okay. No, I'm kidding. It was at the tail end. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I guess I didn't mean to say you didn't have a career. It's just like you watch this movie, and I, w- I mean, I want to talk about this, and you really wa- I really want this role to be played by, like, Seymour Hoffman, or, or if, even if we're going interesting character actors, like, give me, like, Chaz Palminteri or something of, the, of like, that day. Um, you but, don't like his constantly evolving New England accent? It's really rough. Um, it's all over the place. 
Well, and but then, in kind of a funny, charming way. I, w- I mean, I would argue the same of Ray Fiennes' accent. Um, you know, trying to play someone whose like blood is so blue, they're like freezing to death on their own fake charm. Um, trying to do like an American accent. Where do you want to start with this movie, Noah? Well, let's talk about like where this movie sort of fits into the world of like movies about movies, and also like what it kind of says about where television like fits into the cultural conversation yes because like this movie we should say from the the outset has no women in it it has wives and has only white people and the 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 race uh conflict here is like wasps versus jews and rob morrow as dick goodwin not dick goldberg uh is your sort of he can speak to both sides Mm -hmm. he can he can code switch because he's gone to harvard but he can also like speak to uh, john turturro's herbie stemple as like the most nebbishy jewish quiz show contestant you've ever seen so that dates it it definitely dates it and it's sort of like unapologetically dated and it's yeah. the kind of movie, if you like ask Robert Redford about it now, he'd be like, well, that's just like, that's the way it was. And it's like, good night and good luck has women in it. Right. You know, network has women in it. Yes. Uh, Tootsie has women in it. Like, what's your, what's your bait guy? Well, yeah. So, but this is a movie that it's interesting to compare it to network. Cause I think in a lot of ways, like network just like makes a lot of what this movie is saying inessential. Right. Um, Whereas, like, Network is seemingly examining something, is examining what was the future in 1975. This movie is now 25 years old, looking at a phenomenon that was 40 years before that. Yeah, so the question was what I wanted to ask you, kind of something I want to grapple with, like, which weighs more? Because it's a weighty movie, um, just in, like, the watch, in the length, in the amount of things it wants to say. But which weighs more, the movie's insight or it's kind of like needless commentary on TV. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's sort of my overarching question is like, how much do you want to buy into the idea of, you know, it's not real life. It's television and God damn it. Television's worth it. As if it's like some religion. Yeah. These people are paying into. I mean, I'm happy to believe TVs like that. If you, if you want me to, for the sake of this, conversation it just feels a little i think ridiculous from the outset of this movie just how like self-serious it is about capital t television yeah i think the first time that herb plays by played by john turturro comes back to his wife in queens in the midst of his win streak and she's like you know giving him a hard time or something he's just like don't you understand sweetie it's television the biggest thing since gutenberg invented the printing press and to like yeah nobody in this real story said that to shove those words into a character's mouth to let you know this is a movie about television is wow heavy hands they talk about i mean it's written by paul uh atanasio so they talk about television the way that the people in the research mission talk about the sphere in sphere (laughs) it's just like this magical sort of revered orb that they like sort of pass around and then they like pray to and then it reveals their the worst things about them it's very much it, it just is sphere yeah um i don't i mean i don't disbelieve that like 
the TV and like the fact that you could suddenly be connected to mass media just by leaving it on 16 hours a day wasn't like a huge deal in 1958, but you know, making a whole movie about like saying so is a bit superfluous. I think if I can switch to where I think it does better, I think it's commentary on the fifties is perhaps a little sharper. The opening scene of the movie is Dick Goodwin sitting down to buy uh, or think about buying a Chrysler 300 and you see the kind of like sell job and the pristine white showroom of like this car will make you a man. This car will basically like create the Ward Cleaver image around you and they flip on the radio and what they hear is Sputnik and the announcer makes it clear that there's a sort of haunting going on. Like you are now being surveilled by the other you know dark energy across the atlantic and i think where the movie is a little sharper is this idea that the 50s even without approaching the much more obvious sexist and racist things about the decade is like a lot of the dry rot of what we're still dealing with now like was solidified here because it was sold as something it was sold as a picket fence and that still works a little bit for me as commentary i would say I think this movie is also pretty wildly prescient and critical of that sort of important American family thing. Yeah, totally. And just like how all these people are fucking frauds in one way or another. And then especially, we can get into the climax of this movie, but especially at the end with sort of the wrist slapping that ends up actually occurring. Uh it's very much of like even 2019 kind of what do you mean that guy's not getting charged with anything like, right are you kidding me yeah um you're talking about the scene where uh charles van doren reads an apology before the oversight committee um that is some basic level of reflection and the first four people are all like the fact that you would get up here and say the truth is just is so commendable to me <laughs> Right. Which and it's movie, a lot of them. The movie plays it for irony, for sure. Um, let's talk about Fines then, since we're on this subject. Maybe Arn Fines oh. and his relationship to Paul Schofield, uh, famous, the great British theater actor who won the Oscar for Man for All Seasons, uh, plays his father, um, the Van Doren patriarch. How do you feel about the acting going on? Well, it's so. It was funny that you brought up um, Schindler's List because it's so. Charles Van Dorn is the opposite of his role from Schindler's List, that like crazy Nazi psychopath. Like this guy's, he really wants you to like him, which yes. is such an interesting career move that really maybe like cleanses the palate of Rave Fines just because of the massive overcorrect in scripts that he's chosen to pursue. Um, yeah, and we're two years also, out from the English patient too. Two years, yeah, and that's where it just solidifies him as a, a bona fide star. But this one is sort of he he gets he polishes himself and he presents this guy that he sort of seduces you into thinking, or at least me as a heterosexual white man, like yeah, this is the kind of guy I want to be, right? He's like an academic and. You know, he's doing it for the right reasons and he's sort of gaming the system to his advantage and like he's doing the right things with a little bit of power. And then you're like, fuck, that's 
that's what he wants me to believe. But that's not the truth about this situations or many American fraud situations. I think that realization clicking on some level is key, right? Because the first, when he goes on the game show at first, he's kind of just like a bored academic who wants to get out of the family legacy. And it's originally... Well, he's not just bored. He needs to like establish what's him. Yeah. Because he comes from this powerful family. And they say it towards the end of the film, too, of like... They were saying, like, how could he do this? And it was sort of like, how do you not understand how he could do this? Like, obviously he would do this because he needs something to, like, establish his name. There are moments where, that are very striking, where Redford will, like, light him a certain way. And, I mean, the whole, a big part of the appeal of Charles Van Dorn is that he looks great on television. You know, Hank Azaria, one of, like, the co-producers or something, like, sees him in the distance, like, trying out for a quiz show at the network studio. And is like, who is that guy? We got to get that jawline on television. Um, And God, Redford just puts him in, like, this dusky lighting sometimes where it's like, well, it's no coincidence, of course, that Robert Redford knows how to make someone look like a movie star when he's behind the camera. And he's certainly good at making John Turturro so aesthetically displeasing as yeah. to, like, you physically just prefer that, like, wonderful quaff in uh, Ray Fiennes' hair. And the fact that, like, he doesn't have any dark teeth and is, like, his clothes actually fit him. And, like, even when he's a fraud, he's stylish about it and, like, has a certain bit of, you know, ooze. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think you ultimately, you were texting me, you find like, you find it a little easy, a little trite what they do to Totoro in this movie. Yeah, I think it borders on anti-Semitism the way in which he's written, maybe. A uh, caricature. A caricature of like this Jewish immigrant who believes in the American dream. Uh, I mean, it's played for irony, I think. 90% of the time, but like 10% of the time when they like push in on him and his like curly Jewish hair and his like larger than average nose. It's like, okay, Robert Redford, you can pull out like we get it. He's not as charming. There's that scene where it's juxtaposed where he's testifying before the subcommittee and then when Fines testifies, it's just like shot so much more glamorously. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not making any accusations. I'm just stating, I think, obvious facts. I think the best moment of the movie, actually, or the moment that rang the truest is that the dad, Professor Van Dorn, the Paul Schofield character, he doesn't watch TV, right? Um, They don't own one. And he he gets one at this party in the middle of the movie. Um, And there's a moment where he's watching Charles on 21 and is like leaps out of his seat and turns it off at the climactic moment he's just like i cannot stand to watch this like television is too stressful and i thought if we're talking about prescience i actually loved that moment because it solidifies this idea that mass inescapable technology no matter if you're a hawthorne scholar or someone who would avoid it ultimately affects everyone neurologically the same way right like it really made me think of and again i watched this with my with my mom who's out here for her 60th birthday 10 years ago she would have been a person who would have said like look at you kids on your fucking phones you're all bent over you're all hunched over like tapping away in your touchscreens now it's 2019 and if you look at a family at a restaurant does not matter how old anyone is they are all hunched over their phones the exact same way and it's like this technology can invade anybody's like concept of the world and i felt like that was 
um, uh, transmutable theme. That's great. Yeah, there's a lot of really great visual moments uh, like that. I think the the whole idea of twenty one that there's like separated in these two boxes. They're like in these sound. Thing. Yeah, I don't know if that's based on a real actual quiz show. Um, I think so. But it's interesting too how they shoot. So it's just to fuck with uh, John Turturro, they sometimes turn off the air conditioning in his box. Right. And so there are these great moments where it's just like his eyes and you see like a drip of sweat like roll down his cheek. And then it like kind of quickly pans to like the fans slowing down like in the grate like behind him. And he sort of like recognizes that it's happening and and knows that it's it's television that's messing with him. Yeah. but it's it's well shot. The 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 behind the scenes stuff is incredibly well done. Yeah, you remember the moment too where he uh, he knows that he's he's thrown the question about Marty versus on the waterfront and tries to look over at Charles Van Dorn and you sl- just slightly hear his head whack the glass where he cannot yeah. look over there. <laughs> That's pretty great. Um, yeah. It's a terrific performance. It's hard to be mad at this movie too much because of all the great performances in it, and I think. The fines and the Totoro per, uh, performances are, are balanced against each other in a way that, like, they're both kind of watching each other through the glass by the end of it. I agree with you. I think I do think, though, that it's the Moro performance who is in between the bridge between the boxes who does not elevate this movie, you know, say, out of my Netflix queue the last seven years. Um, I think that's the reason it was like, oh, this is an Oscar movie, but it was not a hit. Um, it's not a movie that a lot of people have like returned to with much vigor. I think there are interesting things in it. I think it's interesting anytime like Robert Redford makes a movie. Um, it's definitely great to see early Ray Fiennes. Um, but as we turn toward a rating here, I think it might be a pretty easy good-bad. Meaning like the technical quality is is good and interesting. The themes are of the same, but in terms of like watchability, there's a lot of, the other thing is there's a lot of montage in this movie that like slowly is, is reasonably entertaining in and of itself, but might tip the hand a little bit that Redford knows that there's not as much to dramatize as he would like, especially because you already know they're cheating. Um, So I'm going to land on a good, bad probably. It's definitely, it exists in that school of sort of league of their own level montage. You know, like here's a newspaper headline flying by and here's like the guy getting out of the car and every, all these women scream kind of thing. It's true. Um, I don't know though, but for a movie that one of its climactic scenes is Rob Morrow having like the billiard room scene from Eyes Wide Shut with uh, Martin Scorsese about like how life works is pretty incredible and like kind of a rare gem uh, in an otherwise, you know, I think above average movie. No, that's true. Uh, Um Scorsese. I enjoyed watching it. I think it gets... I, I totally agree that it gets long, especially if you're watching this movie late at night for a podcast. Uh-huh. But what did you rate it? Good, bad. Or did you? You said good, bad? I think it's good, good. But if you want to see the movie that got Christopher McDonald typecast as television game show host... Fuck yeah. Uh, this is it. <laughs> He's great. This is Jack Berry. This is Jack Berry. This is Jack Berry. 
yeah. So I think it's a good good. Oh, did you notice the way he reads his name is the same way he says Perfect Storm? The way – it's incredible. Like the way he describes the three storms hitting each other. It could create a, a perfect storm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, talking about Scorsese. Um, you also have great cameos we should mention from Barry Levinson, who, of course, directed Redford and the Natural, uh, and Ethan Hawke. Did you catch Oh, the- yeah. Ethan Hawke is in for like two seconds leaving the dad's class going like, I don't even know what he meant by that. Right. <laughs> Which, did that seem like a, like a Dead Poet Society joke to you almost? It did. It 100% seemed like a... <laughs> Like a we're related to Dead Poet Society in our like white privilege uh, patina here. I just thought it was really funny as they they cast him for two and a half seconds as like the kid who like doesn't like books and doesn't get them <laughs> after you know playing Todd. Um, all right, should we move on to Slumdog Millionaire? Yeah. All right. So uh, eleven years since this thing. Did you see this movie in theaters? I did. Yeah, this movie. This one, best picture. Yes, I have a. Th- I have some theories. Um, because like this is also a movie with like in retrospect, a lot of problems, and I'm not sure how many of them directly are like its problems that it's creating, or just whether the thing that it's trying to do is creating a tornado of problems. Um, but it made me think. The way it worked and didn't work on me kind of like clarified something about like the last 10 years of Best Picture winners, Um, which is this is a Danny Boyle movie. It was a a massive hit. It made $380 million on a $15 million budget, um, which is crazy. Um, But it falls in that weird zone where like people who really like Danny Boyle would probably not even put this in their top five favorite Danny Boyle movies. Um, Do you think there's somebody out there who like thinks of this movie as their favorite when someone's like, oh, what's your favorite movie on like a first date? Do you think there's somebody somewhere going definitely Slumdog Millionaire? A person I would go on one date with. Sure. I went to high school with this kid named Andrew Sloam, and his current Instagram handle is Sloam Dog Millionaire. So I do think of it then, uh, but not the plot or cast or really anything about the movie, just its existence. I also think of the movie through a high school lens because one of my like, you know, friends dated this girl for like two seconds when we were juniors, who like the morning after this won the movie. Or, excuse me, the morning after this won the Oscar was like, so what won last night, guys? And in total earnestness, she asked, was it Snoop Dogg Millionaire? (laughs) (laughs) And a bunch of little 16-year-old shitheads lost their mind and never spoke to her again. (laughs) I bet you still reference it to this day. Oh, yeah. As soon as I put it on the television, I was like, Sarah, we're watching Snoop Dogg Millionaire tonight. Are you ready? (laughs) And she pretended that she understood a bit you had from high school? Well, then I explained it all, and she was like, I definitely do think less of you. You don't come off well in that story at all. <laughs> but wait, so, well, let's go through the the plot of this movie if we can. The premise is, must be stated. Well, two brothers living in Mumbai, nay, Bombay, right? Uh, really in the slums, uh, lose their mother due to religious violence yep. and 
then have to make for themselves, uh, which leads them to entering this orphanage. Uh, around the same time, they meet a young girl that sort of comes in as their third musketeer. Um, and But then the orphanage is like not what it seems, sort of. And then that leads them into this like crazy world as India evolves around them, right? Um, all of course, yeah. You're 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 kind of uh, presenting. The... Oh, I didn't mention the whole premise. <laughs> well, you're presenting the bigger. You're actually kind of presenting the flashbacks the way they are presented, which is not as flashbacks, but as a kind of chronology framed by Jamal, played by Dev Patel in the present moment being on the Indian version of who wants to be a millionaire. uh, And he knows the answer to all these questions because he has lived some part of it. They are all connected to, uh, you know, 90% of the time, hugely tragic incident in, in his young life. Doctors, lawyers never get beyond 16,000 rupees. He's on 10 million. What can a slum dog possibly know? He went on the show because I thought she'd be watching. She's my destiny. Well, the movie has like the problem. I mean, I think that you were talking about earlier, as you alluded to, it's sort of spinning nature. Um, But the idea that it has three parallel narratives going on. One is the lives of these two young boys. Right that is going on over this 20-year period. But the movie is framed not only by him being a contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, it's actually framed by a third narrative of him being interrogated by a police inspector, um, played by Irfan Khan, uh, and they're watching it on, like, a VHS tape. That's right. That's happened the night before. Whew. And so the tension in that one is like, is he going to get to go back to like finish this thing ultimately? Right. And then the plots kind of like all come together because it is the end of his life, the end of both the game and the end of the night that we started in. Which I think not understanding what's going on in the first 10 minutes of this movie creates a sense of exhilaration that I think Danny Boyle, the director, plays on like very well that carries you deep into the movie before you kind of like settle in for like what's going on and like, oh God, not this. And how much of this am I going to have to take? And is this all going to end in him just like knowing the questions? And the answer is yes. Um, But also that's not the most compelling way to tell this story if you want to examine Jamal, the character, or give Dev Patel space to create a character. I was kind of surprised for how much of these people I watched, how little I still knew about them, and how the actors like didn't seem to have a lot of room to just like breathe. There's no room to breathe in this movie at all. Right. Well, it also has like the the moonlight paradox, right? Where you cast three different people to play the same role where the supporting cast is doesn't change. Yes. But who has more room to... I, I know what you're saying, of course, but who has more room to breathe than the Moonlight actors? That whole movie is designed Well, I give. think the, the, what's good about the Moonlight take on this problem, this cinematic problem, is that it doesn't do, like, the crazy Danny Boyle, like, somebody's being tortured, like, a night later at the end of these three narratives. <laughs> right. 
Like, I quickly... Did you quickly ask yourself in this movie, like, why was he being tortured? Like, who really cares? Like, why would the police be involved in such a serious way? Is, like, that's the only media... The media is so sacred in this market that you get electrocuted if you're even accused, incidentally, of cheating? Yeah, I think you I think like that... why is that the framing device? Like couldn't it just be him doing the game show and then like the fucked up life that led up to it and maybe like a producer whispers to another producer, is someone tipping him off? And they like do a search, you know, like passenger 57 style like of the <laughs> of the crowd or something. Uh-huh. But then it just doesn't become such an oppressive because this is like the Mission Impossible 3 of heartwarming quiz show <laughs> movies. Like you think that you think that, you know, someone's dead and someone's getting tortured immediately. Yeah. No, you're that's a such a good comparison. Yeah, it's not the way I would tell the movie, of course, or like the way that makes the most sense to illuminate the characters. But so let me let me let me make my case for this. This is a movie that I'm not really sure I liked all that much. Um, a movie that I think like lacks for depth when you're doing like a podcast style interrogation of like who the people are. Um, a movie that raises all sorts of like crazy, potentially thorny cultural questions um, about like, should you portray one of the biggest and most important countries in the world this way when like American European audiences often don't see it uh, presented in the screen? Should you portray it this way? Um, but I think what this movie has going for it is Danny Boyle and the way, like the verve um, that he brings to the movie, and especially the way it like lands at the end. Whether you're talking about a much better movie in Moonlight or a more classical epic like Out of Africa, I think what still kind of worked on me and what definitely worked on audiences 2008 on 2008 is just how much you've invested in these kids and how much you want to see them press the magic button at the end and get what they want and to loop that back around to my thing when i look at the last 10 years of best picture winners we got this we got hurt locker king's speech the artist argo 12 years a slave birdman spotlight moonlight Shape of Water, and Green Book. There are a lot of B-minus movies in there. Maybe seven of those were B-minus to B movies. But they are all sell jobs on behalf of the director to like how we want movies to work, right? The build and the fall and the release and the commitment to a style that like is easily recognizable by American audiences. And I think this movie hammers that note. Well, this movie also presents the illusion too that you're watching like a fa- like a fancy foreign film, yeah, because of the captioning on it, and because of mostly I would imagine white cinema goers being brought into an exoticized world that seems like you know sort of charming at least in the relationship between these characters mm-hmm. um but like. There's something disingenuous, I think, about the docu-realism of this movie and the fact that it still is also a movie that believes in the religion of television, that, like, there's this game on top of the game, and that game is, like, more interesting. And if you have that, like, American Ninja Warrior sob story that led you to this moment, 
aka him sort of going from rags to riches, uh, it makes your meteoric rise that much more compelling. So I almost think it's like a self-serious docu-realist examination of the basest reason why we would watch any sort of competition show. Mm. But I don't know that it has enough irony about that. It makes it seem like, yes, the country of India needs a champion to root for. And it's like, no, that's the lie that television tells you. Right. That's not the moral of this movie. That the kid persevered. I think you're very nearly putting your finger on the most interesting question about all of these movies, right? Is how much of the thing that the suits in the movies are telling you you're watching, are you watching in the movie? And what does the director think yes. of that thing, right? Like, that's a really interesting to talk about with Running Man. It's really interesting to talk about with Quiz Show. Um, and yeah, I think I think the lack of detail, and I, I mean, I don't know whether to feel bad about sympathetic about it accusatory about it or ambivalent about it but the sheer lack of movies that american audiences see unless they're like you know schooled in bollywood film which neither of us are unfortunately um but that the american or english language films about india what are we talking about gandhi best exotic marigold hotel darjeeling limited this like we just don't we don't have the context to understand what a game show like this would mean in a country that was founded on a caste system i would assume that would be way 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 different but i do not know in the same way when the mother is brutally murdered by hindu nationalists because they're a muslim family and just like leaves the frame before we learn anything about her it's like should I have known more about that? Should I just accept that as like Danny yeah, Boyle's just, got it's, this? It's justified with that line, get them, they're Muslims. And that's it. That's really it. That's that, so interesting to like, you. Yeah, I mean, I that, think that's right. That violence did happen. Um, you know, it has happened in India, but it's just like I don't I don't under and if this movie tried to give me the context for that, wouldn't it become like an unbearable explanatory piece? I don't know. That's where the movie reaches like just a little bit too far for me. Danny Boyle needs to have that. And there's a secret resistance also on the other side of Running Man. Kind of like <laughs> like the game has to mean something. And sometimes like the game doesn't mean anything. Right. And that's what's maybe where Quiz Show becomes more watchable than this movie because it like gets that there's magic to the TV and like maybe not like maybe let's not have a shot of a kid getting blinded. Yeah. Um and on that note, I mean I if there are people who know more of like the controversy surrounding this movie. So, um Lavlene Tandon um is credited oh, as Oh, the co-director. As co-director, but if you read why she got that credit it doesn't seem to be very much um, involved in like cultural ambassadoring or like making sure we get this right on a level that's true to you know. Well, she was just the casting director for the Indian roles, and who could make sure that the Hindi was good because twenty percent of the movies in Hindi. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the purpose of that was, but yeah, it it does feel like a little. Don't worry, guys. There yes. was an Indian co-director. It doesn't seem to be done very much in earnest, or in the ways no. that ten years later we would want it to be done in earnest. 
Right. Well, that's, I think, the problem with this movie is that it's not critical enough of television because in and of itself, it is a movie that relies on a television trope to be successful and justifies it as a movie that traditionally white audiences can enjoy as feeling good about things that aren't white for a season, paying a lot of money to do so, recommending it to other people. But ultimately, it is an example of why media of that entertainment media is bad. Yes, I would agree. Um, And there's so I probably I talk about Sarah all the time. She's my partner. She's a therapist. Um, She watched this movie with me. She had a great maybe charitable read on what's going on here, which is like the really hokey part of this is like, this guy lived all this thing, so he has a memory for these nine questions, and now he's going to win a million dollars. Because so many of them are involved in trauma, Sarah wisely pointed out that when you have trauma memories, they are not memories. Um, The brain does not file them away as memories. It files them away as sensorial experiences that you cannot escape, which is where PTSD comes from. Um, which I think opens such an interesting door for the movie to show that Jamal like almost doesn't want, it was not good for him to answer these questions correctly, or he doesn't want this, and that could be a really interesting indictment of television, but also in not answering the all-essential question of how he got on this goddamn show in the first place, it can't really, it can't make good on that read. There's only that one sort of passing moment where like, you're supposed to call when he says if, because that triggers the whatever. Yeah. It's like, oh, so he his only resort was because this show is so ubiquitous, the only way he could talk to his girlfriend would be to get on it. And then it was written to the premise of this movie is sort of hokey. Oh, Can I say hokey. that? Oh, I think uh, I was looking I was reading criticism of it, and you know who said the same was uh, Salman Rushdie. <laughs> That's incredible. So you're on that side of the fence. Um, yeah, what else do we have to talk? You want to talk about Dev Patel? Do you want to talk about uh, best and worst moments of Danny Boyle directing? Do we want to talk about MIA or Jaiho? What do we want to talk about? There's definitely a conversation to be had about the soundtrack of this movie. It really plays uh, MIA's airplanes for all it's worth. It's electric. In that train sequence. It's great. It's electric, but is that a problem? I mean, I don't think it... Ha- I mean, I guess it shows them, like, having the hustle and being gangsters or whatever. Yes. Um, and when it times with that moment of them rolling off the train in the dust, and that's the Hakuna Matata age to the next actor, that's pretty brilliant. That's pretty good. Yeah, having that be their 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stick turns into Dev Patel. Yep. Uh, it's pretty good. I think, though, much like I haven't thought about Slumdog Millionaire since this time period, I also haven't thought of M.I.A. since this and Pineapple Express. But Jai Ho's great. Jai Ho's a banger. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, made a whole audience be like, what are they doing? What is this? And then some Indian person who was so fucking bored with all of us white people was like, this is a Bollywood dance, you fucking morons. They're, it's a great Bollywood dance. It, it's it's certainly entertaining. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a sell job from Danny for all it's worth. Um, and I think that uh, it it really is the uh, Green Book. Yes, of Indian stories. It's a better movie than Green Book for sure. But it's I haven't seen Green Book. But I it's don't support that. Working 
but it's but it's working on the same audience the same way 10 years later for sure because after i watched it it felt pretty tight but like as we unpack it a little bit more it's so like intentionally tight that it's sort of annoying so i think it might be a bad bad wow okay I think this Best Picture Oscar winner might be a bad, bad. Would you rank it? Where would you rank it in the lineage of King's Speech, The Artist, Argo, 12 Years a Slave, Birdman, Spotlight, Moonlight, Shape of Water, and Green Book? <laughs> um, I'd put it and Green Book near the bottom. Which probably. he hasn't seen, audience. Just because of what it represents. Yeah. I'm ranking them in... Twitter order. Um, <laughs> and you don't have to see the movies to rank stuff in Twitter order. That's right. Heavens, heaven knows. Um, I kind of liked Argo, though. Do we not like Argo? I think we think that... I think just like with Slumdog Millionaire, I think, in retrospect, we think it's pretty weird that anyone thought that was the best movie of 2012. Of course, people who were like taking criticism seriously at the time did not. Um, but, like... You know, the Oscars do represent this sort of like weird path for general audiences into cinephilia, right? And so like... I will agree that of this year, this was probably the most movie. What was up? What else was up? The Reader, Frost, Nixon, Benjamin Button. It might be better than those. Benjamin Button's horrendous. The Reader's also really bad in my opinion. The Reader is just, yeah, it's a bad like... Nazi love story thing. So many Nazi love stories, Hollywood. Why are you doing this? <laughs> I'm gonna give it a. I'm gonna give Slumdog Millionaire uh, a good bad. It is certainly like worth a rewatch ten years later just to be like, what's going on here? But again, I don't know if you're like really into Danny Boyle. This probably is not your favorite. Um, if you're like looking back at Dev Patel's career, this is just like a sad first. And like highest moment, Hollywood is really not done right by him at all. Um, yeah, it's just so much strange baggage, but I'll give it a good bad. In the year 2017, an innocent man accused of a crime has a choice hard time or prime time. Sensational, perfect contestant. I want him. He must pay. Or play the running man. On your mark! I'll be back. Go! Regarding 1987's The Running Man, let me ask you this, Chance. Has there ever been a movie that has opened with a more elaborate title sequence uh, intro info dump card than this one has? I mean, probably like Demolition Man. But like, we're talking about two quite related movies but this one's like four or five paragraphs of like so the world got to a point where and it was like okay you could just start this movie without any of this and i'd probably piece it together like even uh snake plissken uh, escape from la and new york yeah, like, yeah. don't have it's just like there's a super island okay fine right yeah, the funny we were texting about this. The funny idea 
as it like explains like first of all like what a dystopian movie is how television works how we like violence it's just like you don't think we could have gotten any of that from what is one of the least subtle movies i've ever seen which follows i also think this movie from the outset you know the the religion or whatever of television is a very fundamentalist kind of crazy like idiocracy level like yeah kill him <laughs> so this is like a, a unl like dn dailier like affiliated person who i don't even know i've ever met colin loberg i follow him on letterboxd but he basically like blew this whole review up for me by just saying like this movie's like verhoeven but fucking stupid <laughs> And I was like, yeah, right. that's right. That's kind of all there is to say about The Running Man. But let's talk about it some more anyway. Yeah. No, this is like an exploitation movie in the highest order, of the highest order, I would say. Oh, boy. Um, where we have, yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger at the center of this story about a wrongfully accused man having to both prove his innocence and battle a... American Ninja Warrior, but like, but you die if you don't get through it thing. Yeah. And then just cast all the big people, you know, <laughs> you know, Jesse, the body of Ventura, Jim Brown. Right. Uh, Yafit Kodo. Uh, what's he from? He looks super familiar. Yafit Kodo is in a million exploitation movies. You probably know him from Alien. Oh, yes. Midnight I'm Run. thinking of him from Alien. Um, Mick Fleetwood. Oh, the man. imposing drummer from Fleetwood Mac. He's a big guy. I mean, he's cocaine he's... skinny, but like he's tall. Yeah. Dweezil Zappa's in this movie. Man. Um, and who was the guy you were texting me about? Oh, that was Jim Brown. Right. Yeah. This is our first Arnold movie. In 137 episodes in nearly five years, we've never done an Arnold movie. It seems like we must have done True Lies at least three or four times. I mean, yet we have not. <laughs> So the weird thing about this movie in relationship to this like self-awareness, like is TV good or bad question is that it, it wants, it's trying to be a movie where you praise it as prescient where you're like, yeah, this predicts the way that we're like, we're so obsessed with media, man, in the future. But, um, in 1987, we already fucking were, you're just taking the reality of the day and exaggerating it. But then also, in turn, much like a slumdog millionaire, never thought I'd get to say that, uh, The Running Man is a movie that is an exploitation film and is hyper-violent for people who like hyper-violent entertainment. 100%. That's why, that's why it doesn't work as if it's not a Verhoeven movie. It's too stupid. It does not understand that it is the thing it is potentially satirizing. Right. Well, let's get into the premise of the titular game, uh, The Running Man. Yeah. So, basically, this television affiliate has an arrangement with the United States Justice Department where they send high-profile convicts to this studio where they put them in this, like, go-kart luge thing and, like, shoot them away from the metropolitan area where they're in the studio and let them fend for themselves in a studio that they don't really control, but definitely film, 
that involves them deploying four rotating casts of just like violence bringers <laughs> in various levels of like fearsomeness and believability. It's so much like wrestling. Right. But you got to say, like, the guy wrapped in Christmas lights driving around in that go-kart was, like, not terribly scary. (laughs) (laughs) Dynamo. I was a big fan of Dynamo. Um, But it's so funny that without really explaining it, you understand in the course of this 90-minute movie that Jesse Ventura and Jim Brown are, like, the emeriti of this system, right? They're, like, in suites somewhere with, like, women on both shoulders, like, just watching it. Like, they right. were never supposed to be called back into action, but Arnie dispenses pretty quickly quickly with Buzzsaw and Dynamo. I think Fireball, like, has his accoutrement, like, pretty at the ready for him being, but a, but a, a fighter at large or whatever they've demoted him to. You think uh, a la Rick, uh, Rick Dalton, his flamethrower is pretty close by? <laughs> oh, I think that that thing's gassed up and ready, like, regardless. It is very much like Rick Dalton's flamethrower, though, just to, like, have that thing in the, in the shed outside. It's true, it's um, true. But yeah, but Jesse Ventura's Captain Freedom Jesse Ventura is pretty is good. Unbel- but that, did you notice that that movie penned the technology for the deep fake where they have that thing where they like oh, take yeah. the scan of, of that extra's face and put Arnold Schwarzenegger on it to, to make you think it's him? Yeah. My God. It made me wonder if there wasn't some kind of like, I mean, so Ventura and Schwarzenegger had just been in Pre- Predator comes out the same year. But That's so insane because Predator's so much better. It made me wonder, <laughs> though, like if there was some kind of like weird contractual or like a game of chicken going on where it's like, is Jesse going to fight him in this movie? Because by all narrative rights, he should, right? Yeah, like, and then the fight sequence that there is, quote unquote, in the movie is so lame. You know, Richard Dawson's pretty good as the... Uh, oh, Richard Dawson's incredible. As the game show host, it's very funny to realize that he actually had hosted, like, Family Feud and Match Game. Like, he was just doing a more exaggerated, um, you know, totalitarian version of the thing that he already did. <laughs> right. Um, I think it also needs to be noted, too, that this movie is directed by the guy who played... Dave Starsky in the original Starsky and Hutch. Paul Michael Glazer. Yes. And he actually directed a surprising number. We did The Cutting Edge. He did Kazam. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a... It's like so many of those Arnold movies in the 80s, though. It's like... It's basically directed by Arnold. It's just like whatever the $15 million star wants to do, right? Absolutely. He has some truly terrible, cringeworthy... Like one-liners too. Oh, in this one. I mean, just like so much of like from Commando uh, onward. From Com- he literally says, "I'll be back." Shameless. At one point. Totally fucking shameless. Hello, cutie pie. One of us is in deep trouble. <laughs> like, what is that? What does that mean? I already joked about this, but if you sounded as silly saying "come on" as Arnold does, which I believe is. Come on. Um, <laughs> would you be. Oh, you have a really good Arnold. That's great. Would you want to say it eight times a movie? Uh, yeah. This, I, there's just something reprehensible about this movie. It makes one feel icky watching it. Oh, I didn't feel icky. It's just, you know, it's stupid. 
I felt it was like it's so dated in its politics and like such a confusing addition to this genre too because like television is the only religion but it also is evolving so quickly that it doesn't know what it is yeah like there's that line in it when the director guy goes mr spock you have the con and like one of the tech guys is like who's mr spock oh right the joke about how television is religion but it's but star trek is an old testament like that doesn't right doesn't make sense to me oh interesting interesting like why would they have that in the script like i think the point they're trying to make is like this is in the future guys right like if you can remember star trek this will never happen well also it's the classic funny 80s apocalyptic movie where it's uh didn't this movie happen in the year 2017 (laughs) right (laughs) yeah um yeah, you know, Roger Ebert said in his review of this that all the scenes of violence are essentially the same scene over and over again, and he's dead right. One of the things this movie could really use is, like, why is the game show not taking place in theme rooms? Like, the the big bads are all kind of themed around a thing. So why are not... why there? It would be so much more watchable if there were just environments and not, like... They just... went in all in on the ice rink, and then they were like, well, Dynamo's going to have a car... And this guy's going to have a chainsaw motorcycle thing. Yeah. And then this guy uh, is played by Jim Brown. Yeah, barbed wire and dirt. Um, You know. This movie, I was a little upset how this movie didn't really do right by Jim Brown, who may be the greatest NFL player ever. (laughs) But it just, like, gives him, like, Cruella DeVille hair. And it's just like, run. Why would I want to see Jim Brown run? (laughs) He really does look like the Bride of Frankenstein yeah. as he like shoots down that little tube. <laughs> exactly. Um, my only other big joke I have for you is uh, it's really funny to me when you remember how much from Minnesota Jesse Ventura actually is, um, as evidenced in the line, this is a sport of death and honor, code of the gladiators. <laughs> like the code <laughs> where there's like 20 H's behind the O. Oh boy, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, like this is a this is a dumb, silly movie that, like, also we have not mentioned was based on Stephen King text, <laughs> um, but not not <laughs> one that he liked enough to not publish under the name Richard Bachman. So uh, less. That's incredible. There. Um, yeah, it's stupid. I think it is. Uh, to quote Noah, quintessential bad good. You think it's bad good and not bad bad? No, I think I think it's pretty entertaining. I think there are enough famous people, um, enough like just hyperbolic performances. Um, maybe it's just because I haven't like watched and we haven't reviewed very much Arnold, but like him doing exposition, um, and of course Mick Fleetwood being the leader of the resistance is so fucking funny to me. Um, yeah. yeah, I'll give it a bad good. Is this going to be the episode where I rank a or I rate a an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie higher than a Best Picture winner? You tell me. It sure may. Um, yeah, I think this. I agree. I think it's a it's a bad good. It's the kind of movie that would have been on the WB or TNT on a Saturday afternoon. That's quintessential bad good to me absolutely uh, but it's it's icky the way like the original robo cops are icky like when a guy takes like a chainsaw to the scrotum it's like oh pretty... yeah jesus just the way that like people's eyeballs start melting in uh 
RoboCop. But to come back to your point and to the the Verhoeven observation, RoboCop is such a more intellectually combative movie about what you're watching and the world and what you are quote unquote enjoying versus what the movie says about what you might like, which is Verhoeven's whole thing with Starship Troopers and Basic Instinct and so many of his other really good movies. Um, this movie does not have those synapses firing in its like film brain. Like this is stupid. I think it's uh criminal that we haven't done Starship Troopers. Yeah, we need to do more Verhoeven. Yeah, let's do that. Because I I mean I like a good exploitation movie. Right. But this one's like not used for anything more than like probably should only watch TV in moderation kind of like political right. view of the world. You know, it's not that major corporations are going to set up death games for us all to feed on while the world burns outside. Yeah, and unlike something like Escape from New York where, like, you can go back and look at the roguish, like, what does the rogue a la Snake Plissken as played by Kurt Russell mean compared to, like, who we all accept as one of the most self-aggrandizing movie stars ever in Schwarzenegger? Like, it's just, it's not really, like, open for interesting debate, you know? Sure. Yeah. But uh, but what is it, 87 minutes? Yeah, and when uh, Dynamo gets electrocuted, it's pretty hilarious. Of course. Don't don't drop any water on the Christmas lights costume, boys and girls. That'll, that's its only nemesis, is water. Any big questions, or can we wrap it up? Um, yeah, three movies with three pretty outlandish premises that I don't totally follow i don't know why quiz show led to congressional hearings other than for the aaron sorkin of it all i don't know why um this kid had to go through all these horrible things just to win a bunch of money on who wants to be a millionaire not very good american actual quiz show and i don't see a universe in which we're gonna shoot criminals through a tube and fight in our, like, you know, ungentrified neighborhoods. But I was, you know, they're movies. I like watching those. Another podcast in which the movies were movies. Thanks for That's about the worst you can say about them. <laughs> thanks for listening, everyone. We really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for being along for the ride. It's always so fun to talk to you, Noah Ballard. It's great to talk to you, too, buddy. This, uh, this show keeps me nourished. Yeah. And uh, I'll take uh, seeing Ad Astra with you for 1,000, please, Alex. Coming up. In life's few pleasures, that is one that I'm looking forward to with uh, great excitement. Hell yeah. We'll look for a podcast around that, and I'll be looking for you on the streets of New York very shortly. Uh, Brothers, uh, safe travels. Can't wait. Talk to you soon. 